Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach for the Naval Institute. Joining me is my usual co-host, the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. So it's been a lot of current events, a lot of it not so good this week, um, starting with the tragedy over in the Fifth Fleet AOR. Yeah, very hard week for the Navy and the Marine Corps this week. Uh, starting you know, last uh, weekend, we heard news that Vice Admiral Scott Sterney, Commander of Fifth Fleet, apparently uh, found dead in his, um, in his quarters in Bahrain. Uh, reports are apparent suicide, although the, I think the official cause of death is not, has not been announced yet, but really tragic. Um, you and I uh, had conversation about this. Uh, Sterney, call sign Sterno, F-18 pilot, uh, commanded an air wing squadron, air wing uh, carrier strike group, and then 5th Fleet. Uh, he was a JO in my first squadron in the Navy, VFA-87, when Admiral Keating was Commander Keating and the, and the CEO of the squadron. Uh, and Sterno was just one of those professionals, professional, uh, incredibly talented, hardworking, an amazing aviator, consistently in the top 10 hook competition in our air wing as a JO, went on to be a Top Gun instructor, EA for uh, Admiral Johnson when Admiral Johnson was the CNO. Uh, I, I crossed paths with Sterno numerous times in our careers, uh, and, and most recently at the International Sea Power Symposium in Newport in in uh, September. So, just uh, tragic news, uh, very uh, you know hard to understand um, when when a guy is that successful and that uh, impressive and that well liked by his troops and and respected. Uh, so we wish. Um, him, you know, rest in peace, and we wish his family all the best as they, you know, grapple with this very, very tragic um, death. And uh, USNI News has identified his relief. That's correct. Uh, Vice Admiral James Malloy, who is a surface warfare officer coming from being the uh, director of operations and plans N3, N5 on the, on the OPNAV staff. Uh, uh, and uh, we saw that um, the vice chief uh, flew over to Bahrain uh, to help. Uh, with the transition there, and also to reassure the families and uh, our allies that uh, you know nothing was going to change. Uh, ops normal would conti- would continue. We you know we got to keep carrying out the mission. Um, and uh, I also knew from some emails with old squadron mates that uh, Admiral Sterney's body remains uh, returned to the United States uh, on Wednesday or Tuesday this week. It flew flew into uh, Dover, Delaware, and we're welcomed as uh, remains are at the um, re, you know point of return as so many um, you know uh, soldiers and marines and, and sailors have been over the last 15 years from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan so uh, and I it sounds like he will be interred at um, uh, Arlington National Cemetery on the 20th of December um, also as USNI news has reported and kept us updated on um, we had a C-130 and a uh, F-18D, a two-seat uh, Marine Corps Hornet, had a mid-air during a training evolution. Um, air, you know, in-flight refueling is always tricky, um, and uh, I've, I've had the opportunity to tank in a Tomcat from a C-130. It's fairly, uh, when you're in the basket, especially if there's somebody else in the other basket, um, it's pretty tight quarters. But, uh, um, you know, they have found... Uh, uh, two of them, I believe, and they're still searching for the other five. Yeah, six six died. Five, the five crew members of the, uh, or I, I think it's safe to assume that six died. So one of the the Hornet pilot died. 
think his backseater was uh, was rescued, and then the five crew members of the C-130 have not been found yet, so assumed uh, missing and dead. Uh, so yeah, very tragic. Uh, it was night refueling off of uh, out of Iwakuni, Japan, uh, and a you know a really tragic accident. Yeah, another reminder is if we needed one that uh, you know the, the business is inherently uh, um, dangerous, risk, risk, Risky. not risk free. Right. right. Um, right. So uh, this week was also the uh, uh, national mourning for the passing of uh, former naval aviator George Herbert Walker Bush, the 41st president of the United States, a war hero from World War II, a TBM Avenger pilot who was shot down, and the two guys with him were were killed in that um, that event, um, for which he uh, bore a lot of guilt for the uh, balance of his life. Um, so really a, a war hero who went on to public service in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, ambassador Con- to China. Congressman. Congressman. Director of the CIA. Yep. Uh, Vice, VP. Vice president for eight Reagan. years, president yep. for four years, correct. Yeah, uh, so just, uh, you know, his passing... Uh, not um, surprising necessarily. Right. I mean, he'd 94 been ailing for right. some years, um, but certainly you saw the outpouring from from the nation, including a 21-plane uh, flyby yesterday in pretty challenging weather. If you saw the video coverage uh, on the news, you could see those four planes punch through the the layer right before they got. You know, over I, I did. The, I the watched target. that on on USNI yeah. News on our YouTube channel this yeah. morning. And like, they managed wow. a missing man, um, which was pretty sporty. So, con, you know, well done to those squadrons involved. I think it was 103, 143, and I'm blanking on the third uh, VFA squadron out of Oceana. Yeah, 30 airplanes deployed down there. Yeah, well, it's 30 to, to make 21. To make 21. Which is, uh, right, yeah. Again, people don't understand how much goes into that kind of. Uh, that kind of uh, sortie, but great job by the naval aviators. I know uh, it was appreciated by the Bush family from the reactions on on TV um, and uh, the nation as as a whole. So uh, good work there. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about before we get to our guest is yesterday we had another um, installment of our maritime security dialogue in partnership with CIS, CSIS in, in Washington D.C. Um, if you have the chance to attend one of these in person, you really should. And yesterday was a great example of that. Um, the guest was the Secretary of the Navy, um, Richard Spencer, and he was on point with his comments regarding the budget, manpower, peer-to-peer warfare, um, all kinds of stuff. He was just a quote machine. Um, and what was even better is the president of CSIS, who's Dr. Hamray, who was the Pentagon's comptroller for a number of years was both asking really pointed questions, but then also offering sort of opinion in a way that was really uh, value added about budgets and what did you think about the Space Force, which Dr. Hamray said was a stupid idea, quote unquote. Interesting. Um, But when he talked about budgets, he was talking about the unseen costs or the unseen uh, slices into a budget depending on when it gets approved, depending on, you know, and it was just really uh, educational to watch him in a layman's way go through what the unseen sort of tax on a defense budget, if you're operating under a CR, if it gets approved like seven months into the fiscal year, you know, it, it, was, it was just a great um, exchange. So I recommend those who missed it, go up the CIS, CSIS website 
It's at csis.org. And look under podcasts, and you can see their latest installment. They have a lot of sound files from yesterday's exchange. Um, so really very cool. Um, and again, if you've never been to one of these things, uh, one of the Maritime Security Dialogues, it's like all of our events. It's you know newsworthy, and we always get the influencers and newsmakers, and they're moderated by the right people to make this worth your time. So and yesterday was a great example of that. And then... Um, those on the podcast cannot see that I'm wearing my Roger Staubach throwback jersey, but tomorrow's the Army-Navy game. I'll be headed up in the morning for that. This year, Navy is um, the underdog. You know, Army's got quite a team, but as anyone who's ever been around the Army-Navy Navy game knows, not to mention those who went to the Naval Academy, it's a new ball game day of. The Army-Navy Navy game is really unique. Well, just like any major rivalry, I guess. Right. Um, but records don't matter Point spreads don't matter. Anything can happen day of. And so uh, go Navy, beat Army. Go Navy. I'll be there too. You're going? Yeah, I'm going. Oh, my my uh, class is having a big um, tailgater uh, with a heated tent and big screen TV and all that. So looking forward to it. Headed up with one of my um, plebeia roommates who's flying up from Florida. And we'll drive up. From, nice. Uh, from Rock on 87. So, so go right. Navy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So let's get to our guest. Uh, our guest today is Navy Captain Sharif Kalfi. He is a surface warfare officer who is uh, joining us today from Princeton University in New Jersey. Uh, he's written an article in the December issue of Proceedings, starts on page 3233, called The Navy Needs an Autonomy Project Office. Sharif, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Good morning, and thank you for having me. So what, what brings you to Princeton? Well, uh, I had the opportunity uh, before I returned uh, back out to, to sea for uh, Major Command uh, to be, I had a year, so I had the opportunity to, I was selected to, uh, by Princeton University, uh, I'd applied previously, and then uh, I'd requested through the Navy if I can go, and they approved it, and so uh, that allowed me to attend for this one-year program in the Masters of Public Policy program, uh, focused on international relations. And this proceedings article is a result of your, your thesis, correct? You, you well, spent it's, uh, it's the actually a result, uh, before this, I spent a year uh, in the Federal Executive Fellowship Program. Uh, uh, Navy had selected me, and uh, that program selects uh, about 10 to 12 officers a year in order to, uh, to be able to attend uh, either a defense policy analysis think tanks or some, uh, some other educational uh, program in order to, uh, to study issues that are of interest to them that are also useful to the Navy. And so I was the first uh, fellow to go to the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and Nonpartisan Defense policy analysis think tank in uh, D.C., and uh, during that time, I, I was able to pursue this research study uh, in an area that's interest to me. I mean, uh, by background, I have a master's in computer science with uh, a focus in artificial intelligence and, uh, and uh, autonomy, and so uh, this issue, along with the, the intersection of that with national security, was what brought me to the topic. Got it. So, uh, you know, in, in a, a quick 30 seconds, give us a little bit of a, you know, boiled down what this article is about. You know, wh why did you uh, jump on this topic, and, and what's the particular problem that you're trying to solve here? The uh, reason why I, uh, I, I chose this topic was that uh, I think many people who are paying attention to the technology sector know uh, artificial intelligence and autonomy are uh, surging in, uh, in relevance to every day, and the research and development that's occurring is very, uh, very critical. And not just to us, but to you know, our adversaries as well, who are pursuing it with all due vigor. And so 
Uh, in looking at what the next big technology that can impact uh, military war fighting and future conflicts, it was important for me, I, I thought, to explore how the uh, U.S. Navy is, is approaching this. And the Navy's done a lot of great work in laying out the, the fundamentals, including signing out the uh, Strategic Roadmap for Unmanned Systems. Uh, and so I wanted to see how we could accelerate the R&D, you know, the research and development, the uh, prototyping and test and evaluation and oper operationalization of uh, unmanned systems. And so that allowed me to visit uh, over 160 uh, subject matter experts and over 50-plus organizations across the, uh, the country. And then through that, I was able to kind of assess the framework of what I call the unmanned systems uh, research and development constellation of organizations that support this, and then maybe make some recommendations about how we can improve on accelerating, accelerating those issues. So when you say constellation, um, I, what I got from your article is those stars – to take the metaphor a step far further, aren't really playing together in any any cohesive way. I, I think you've, you've, you've got it right. So there's uh, across uh, federally funded research and development centers, FFRDCs, university affiliated research centers, UARCs, industry and academia, think tanks, and other organizations that support the Navy and DOD labs, many of them are pursuing uh, different niches, different uh, areas of expertise uh, that are important to unmanned uh, unmanned systems on, and autonomous systems development. But uh, one of the things that you know I, I had discovered is that we could probably improve upon the cohesiveness, the uh, the coordination and collaboration amongst them, because uh, many of them are almost operating sometimes in, in a little bit of a vacuum uh, and are not aware of some of the expertise or some of the other uh, work that's going on at, at other institutions. And that uh, when that happens, that friction, it, you know, the heat from that friction it, it is really the lost lost resources and, effort, uh, and, uh, and efforts that could be accomplished uh, if they were better collaborating. So when I, I worked at NAVAIR as my first job after I retired from the Navy, I worked on the V-22 program, but those were the early days of Fire Scout and some of the other unmanned systems that they were working on. I'm not sure they even had a dedicated program office yet. Um, and I know that they've really blown that out, that the, you know, with the X-47 and, and the... Uh, What's the current uh, unmanned that uh, Boeing just won oh, the, the award? The, the Triton? Yeah. The MQ-4? The MQ, or are you talking about no, the MQ-25? MQ-25, the Stingray. Right? Yep. Yeah, so um, it's come a long way. But if we were to wander to, you know, NAV-C or NAV-subs, you know, they're they're kind of stovepiped, right? They're, they're not – there's no collaboration, to my knowledge, between the syscoms. Um, I mean, you talk a lot about R&D in the article, but I, I don't see any mention of the CISCOM's uh, responsibilities behind R&D. Um, so d walk us further be behind what's wrong and, and what could be done in the short term to improve um, both cross-pollinization and learnings, but also the getting capability to the fleet piece. Okay. Well, first, uh, w w what i like to mention is that uh, – to highlight that the organizations in the you know in, in this constellation, you know the individual effort, the scientific innovation, uh, and all the intelligence and the work that they're doing has uh, you know I was very impressed and fantastic you know it was fantastic. There uh, there's a lot of people who really want to and are really trying to work on a number of different issues that could really push our I think our technology uh, forward in very meaningful ways. And then uh, you know that's both within uh, you know outside DoD and within you know within the Department of Navy. You know, a number of organizations, including you know, uh, PMS 406, 
and a number of the and other ones that support them are doing some fantastic work with what they have available and the capacity they have available. So, so I want to make sure I, I highlight that uh, you know that great work that's happening. What I kind of, in my opinion, what I assessed was that the overall framework of how we pursue the uh, this R and D for unmanned systems is uh, it, we need to maybe look at restructuring it in a way that allows for more cohesiveness. What, what I discovered was that there was uh, about six areas where I, I think we could improve based off of not having that, uh, having a better you know, bureaucracy or, or, or structuring that helps to funnel and uh, make more effective this R&D. The first was just that you know, you know, we had uh, hyper-focus hyper in some of the what I call the R&D lines of effort and then starvation and other cri uh, critical lines of effort that, uh, that, that we could improve on. And the second thing was that there was a lack of awareness of key organizational centers of expertise within that R&D constellation, as we mentioned before. The third, that there was a significant bureaucratic, administrative, and risk aversion impediments to that R&D, things that are just preventing the organizations from being more effective in pursuing that, that are administrative and maybe could be, could be lifted. Well, so let's drill down on that. Let's drill down on that. Again, without telling tales out of school or... Um, somehow hazarding your professional standing. What 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 do you mean by that? Uh, you know, sometimes it was it was things as uh, as simple as just you know, the processes for uh, being able to pursue certain uh, you know, certain research. And you know, in, in some cases, sometimes we have lithium batteries. There was a lot of uh, administrative requirements. You know, safety is obviously very important. But you know, one of the things I, I had noted was that there was a a a, a a large amount of frustration with you know within lithium batteries for how they the processes they had to go through in order to do just do research. Uh, other areas sometimes you know included the uh, you know unmanned aviation systems and then uh, the things that they needed to uh, pursue in the different administrative requirements in order to uh, be able to just simply operate them for research purposes, be able to get approvals to do that. So uh, things like that that produced you know, for for many of the scientists and engineers produced. Uh, a risk aversion that was very frustrating to them, and, and, and that they felt hampered their ability to proceed, uh, and that could be you know could be streamlined without sacrificing some of the safety. So that was some of the concerns that were were, were brought, and that was highlighted uh, as well in the uh, in the U.S. Navy Research and, and Advisory Council uh, Committee's 2017 report uh, that looked at that as well as the article noted. Yeah, on page 34, Sharif, that that. Um committee report that you just mentioned uh, at the top of the second column here you say uh, or you you quote that that report says we have layers of accountability at the program manager level when they overreach and fail but there's no accountability at the senior leader level when they fail to advance our capabilities fast enough to meet the strategic threat so there's I think that gets to a really important point that in terms of risk management oftentimes there's this um, you know, the incentives are, are at least for a fast-paced threat change, right, that we ha we don't have the inf incentives in the right place, that, hey, you got to take some risk. If we're going to stay up with the Chinese and the Russians, I was just reading today about uh, how the Russians' Su-57 is going to be armed with a hypersonic anti-ship missile. So, you know, there's there's clearly some pacing threats out there, and if we can't uh, take some risks to keep up with those capabilities, we're going to fall behind. And, and that's got to be part of the risk calculus as well. Yeah, very true. And, uh, 
you know, the, I think the last area that, you know, that uh, causes more confusion, you know, some frustration, more confusion, is sometimes just uh, the DOD uh, Directive 3000.09, which is Autonomy and Weapon Systems, uh, you know, printed or uh, came out a few years ago, uh, designed to kind of pr provide some boundaries on what type of, you know, autonomy we need and, and provide some definitions. But uh, a couple areas in there where sometimes there's confusion about what type of autonomous uh, systems can be developed, developed and what time, which ones are verboten or not allowed to. And then I, I, I just had discovered that there's a wide range of confusion where some thought that they could not even uh, look at developing you know, the uh, autonomous mission systems just for uh, proof of concept purposes in order to, to see if, if that was even possible, uh, that they weren't, they weren't able to even do some of that. So that confusion, a lot of times uh, constraining many of these organizations' ability to focus on the type of autonomy that I believe that we may need in the future, and maybe our adversaries are not constrained, uh, constrained by. So one of your big uh, recommendations in this article is that the Navy should create an, an autonomy project office uh, directed by a three-star, and, and your recommendation is that that should be a three-star who gets into that position. The, the word czar is probably overused, but that's what came to my mind as I read this. Uh, and that would be a position that the, that, that officer, kind of like Hyman Rickover, was in charge of nuclear propulsion for so long that this would be a long-term flag officer assignment at the three-star level to build expertise, to build stability in the program, uh, and to give um, you know, the capability to make changes on a, on a long-term scale that could direct and you know, sort of in, um, bring these different capabilities together in ways that create synth uh, you know, synthesis, correct? That's correct. Uh, you know, that uh, APO, the Autonomy Project Office, as you, as you mentioned, it is, uh, was what I think is an important piece to all this because it will help unify a lot of these disparate uh, organizations and lines of uh, research and effort into into a more collaborative process. And, and the, the point being not to replicate or duplicate the important and very critical work that is happening in all these, you know, FFRDCs, UARCs, all these research centers, and even DOD Navy labs, but to better collaborate and coordinate and uh, what's happening. And when new technology spurs out, also to be able to, to do a rapid focus to see if that's something that's useful and then spiral that into uh, you know, that occurs out in, in whether it's academia or uh, commercial sector, and be able to, if it's useful, spiral that into things that the uh, Navy should explore that could be uh, pulled into prototyping. With the overarching goal of the APO to always be prototyping, always be developing new prototypes that are based off of uh, desires or preferences or needs, uh, uh, warfighting needs of the fleet, in order to uh, see what will work, and then you know, if it is, then either go into low production uh, rate of prototyping or to pass to you know pass to the uh, N9 codes in order to uh, pursue or pursue a requisition and acquisition. Uh, you mentioned also as well the uh, you know the, the type of the, the, the archetype that we talked about before. You know Admiral Rickover, and there was others too. You know Admiral William Rayburn with the submarine launch ballistic missile program. Even more recently, uh, Admiral Wayne Meyer with the Aegis program. Uh, the key thing being that uh, you know, experts, uh, experts in their fields and, and leaders as well, are able to produce uh, cross-functional inter interdisciplinary organizations that were able to accomplish uh, in, you know, our research development and introduction of technologies that were uh, revolutionary or transformative to naval warfighting. 
So hey, I, I, I do want to point out to, to both Sharif and to our listeners, uh, many of our listeners have heard this background noise before, but we're in full ship shipyard <laughs> mode here at Beach Hall today. Uh, <laughs> the con- general contractor who's putting, you know, redoing the brick facade of the building and, and uh, working on our roof. It's like uh, we're, we're definitely in shipyard mode. And all, so the background like noise we're on the 03 level of the, of the no carrier day. with the needle yeah. guns going. Yeah. Absolutely. They're yeah. chipping. So we the apologize. Skin. I mean, it's an apology we've been doing for like two months. We now, have been. So. And it's supposed to be done about the middle of December. So maybe another yeah. week or two of this. But it probably won't be just like the shipyard. Right. right. It'll probably be over late. budget behind yeah. schedule. <laughs> um, so the the. the as we talk about R and D, um, the the thing that strikes me is in hard budget times, and you know, so we're already uh, talking about the next the next uh, NDAA and how it's already being challenged. In fact, uh, Dr. Hamre yesterday was was talking about if you slice and dice a budget, uh, and you look at you know continuing resolutions, and you look at you know Senate passage and and Hask and Sask, and he really did a nice layman's example of what you actually get. And he went through just, you know, so you get the budget seven months late. So that's, that's not this amount of a cut. It's actually 7% more. And then you don't touch manpower. So now it's an 18% cut and, and, and you can't touch the programs or records. So now it's a 25%, you know, and, and so forth and so on. So um, what I know uh, is, and having worked on the Syscom side is R and D is always the first thing to go. Right. And, and so uh, a lot of the times we, we get the R&D piece uh, so far uh, away from the program of record and the RFP piece. Uh, so you mentioned Aegis as, as sort of the, the poster child of, of something that actually got fast tracked and turned into a, you know, a, a really game changing system. Um, so when you think about um, the distance between this R&D constellations and fleet capability because people are always criticizing especially with the f-35 taking so long to you know to get to ioc um what what are your fears uh with respect to what you've flagged here in the article oh i think my uh my greatest concern would be that uh you know i think that in my opinion the the, the framework for how we're we're pursuing uh autonomous unmanned systems now will not allow us, we're, we're making progress, but we're making progress within a, I think, a framework that constrains maybe greater progress. That could be occurred if we, if we did some restructuring and reorganization to better uh, leverage and utilize that constellation and, uh, and then connect it more, uh, more closely and smartly to the, uh, to, you know, to the Navy and to the fleet, what the fleet needs are. My concern would be that we would uh, find ourselves, although making progress, not making progress at the pace that maybe an adversary could uh, could pursue, and that uh, we, we may find, uh, you know, we possibly find ourselves, uh, you know, behind. And so that I, I believe with, you know, with, with that case that an autonomy project officer or a project officer, something similar, would help us better align our resources, better align our efforts, our unity of uh, command and unity of effort in order to more forcefully and uh, effectively pursue that R&D. Uh, you know, there's two areas that we, that I think that we are really, you know, I believe that we're coming up short in when it comes to this area that I highlight in the article. And that's in the, uh, you know, and just as background, I, I highlight, you know, several different areas where uh, what I call lines of effort, navigation control, propulsion engineering, uh, propulsion engineering, payloads, kinetics, human machine teaming, prototype design, 
and in systems integration, test and evaluation, mission autonomy, cybersecurity, uh, hardening communication sensors. I mention that because uh, in my research and in my visiting of all these organizations, the area where I feel that we are doing the least amount of R&D, but it's the most critical areas, is both in mission autonomy and test and evaluation. And by mission autonomy, I mean kind of the artificial intelligence and other algorithms that are needed to run uh, run these air, unmanned air surface or undersea vehicles that we need to, it's one of the most complex areas require, you know, I have a background in computer science and, you know, have seen and, and been able to see some of the work in this area. It's complex and we need to spend more time and effort developing that so that these systems can be more effective in a warfighting environment. And the second area being test and evaluation, which is the ability to be able to accredit, you know, to accreditation, certification, verification, you know, and, you know validation, and just to verify and operate uh, that they are going to operate in the open environment how we want them to so that we can build that human trust in these systems that will allow us to, uh, to let them operate uh, a little bit more freely. And uh, those two areas, I believe, are critical to uh, to development of unmanned systems, but I think are uh, are not getting as much focus and resources. They're being starved of potentially of resources within the constellation because of lack of focus. Whereas in other areas uh, like navigation control, which is simply designing the algorithms for it to get to point A to point B, uh, there is a you know I think a, a an overabundance of of a focus in in that line of effort to the point where nearly I think I said two thirds of the organizations are focusing on navigation control, uh, and then only one or two organizations I saw paid attention to mission autonomy, which is a, a, and tested evaluation, which I think is very uh, We've kind of got that backwards. Hey, uh, Sharif, this is this article uh, turns out to be really timely. Uh, this week, I was uh, pleased to be invited over to uh, NAVC on Monday for a conversation with uh, Rear Admiral Nagley, who's in charge of uh, small combatants and unmanned UA, UASs and US, uh, what is it? So unmanned sea, surface vessels, unmanned um, undersea vessels. Uh, and it was incredible the focus that that office, you know, is putting on unmanned, right? And then on Tuesday night at the strategy discussion group, which takes place in Crystal City, usually twice a week or twice a month, I'm sorry, um, Rear Admiral Boxall N96 was there to talk about the future of surface combatants and what they're planning to build and how does the Navy get to 355 and what does the surface uh, force look like? And, and that presentation, um, you know, so much of it was about unmanned and about the future architecture. And one of the things I came away with was um, the, the surface force in the future will be a pyramid with a small number of large surface combatants at the top a slightly larger number of small surface combatants, that'll be LCSs and, and future frigates. Um, and and then underneath that is medium size or large size uh, uh, unmanned and uh, small or medium size unmanned vehicles, uh, which are seen as um, sensors that go out and then also um, armory um, additions, right? So you'll have a cruise of the future uh, large surface combatant, uh, DDGs, etc., future frigate, with the ability to control these unmanned vehicles that are going to be sensors way out there in the battle space and, and comms relays, and also 
uh, a large number of essentially small, if you will, arsenal ships that are carrying weapons. Uh, and so it's the, the, the architecture is interesting. How to get there from where, what we have now is, is pretty challenging. Um, but your article definitely ties into how do you do that? How do you get it? How do you, how do you field the technology, upgrade the technology? How do you align your research to the areas where you most need it? Where you most need to make the the, the future happen, uh, so it, you know, it, it, it's interesting to see this all come together in a conversation that is very uh, timely. Um, and I would also point out that not a lot of proceedings articles get mentioned in Chinfo clips. So mo- Chinfo is you know mostly daily news. So USNI News is featured every day, uh, but your article was picked up by Chinfo clips this week. So somebody. Uh, in the Navy staff, read it and liked it, and said, "Hey, we need to, you know, get this uh, article pretty broadly disseminated." And so it was uh, in Chinfo Clips, I think, on Monday or Tuesday. I don't know if you saw that or not. Uh, yeah, yes, I was, uh, I was very pleased that uh, I was able to make uh, Chinfo Clips. And then, uh, to your, your to your your previous point, uh, you know, I agree with you. The, the Navy in the last you know couple of years, the Navy has really focused on trying to get the strategy right for. Uh, you know, for unmanned systems. And I think you were referring to, you know, maybe the strategic roadmap for unmanned systems um, with, you know, how we're looking for, you know, both you know, unmanned air uh, surface and, uh, and undersea vehicles and, you know, how we're going to progress in the future. And then, you know, that work, you know, that, you know, that's been happening, uh, and, you know, as well as, you know, and, and as you mentioned, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the resource offices, you know, N- N96, N97, and others have been doing a lot of uh, fantastic work in uh, in support of that in order to kind of lay out what the the vision should be and, and that strategy should be uh, and, you know and the offices you know you know such as you know NAFCES, PMS 406 and the others that support them have been working very hard to uh, to uh, align and move down that path so uh, the big thing that I think I, I mentioned in my article is that uh, when we have yeah, when we have the strategy the important thing is to you know is to create the you know the connective tissue uh, in order to be able to achieve that strategy, and that uh, I believe that an autonomy project office would be would allow us to take that strategy and vision that we've come out, and then uh, take that in order to help consolidate a lot of the gains that we've uh, that we've achieved so far, and to be able to help push and accelerate into the future uh, that strategy into realization and actualization out in the fleet with prototypes that could be uh, selected by the by the fleet and by leadership. Uh, and to be turned into acquisition programs of the, of the future. So, uh, you know, with that, I think, you know, that point of uh, we've got to be able to actualize what the vision is on that. Uh, otherwise, if we, I think we maintain that, you know, the status quo, we could be outpaced. That's a great summary of your article. And unfortunately, we're out of time, but we'll uh, we'll move on and and, uh, and end there. So the uh, our guest today was Captain Sharif Kalfi, U.S. Navy. He's a surface warfare officer, uh, student at Princeton University, getting a, a PhD and <laughs> a master's degree. A master's degree. Sorry, master's. Um, <laughs> and uh, wrote this article that is in page on starts on page 32 and 33 of the December issue of Proceedings. It's titled "The Navy Needs an Autonomy Project Office." So, Sharif, thanks for joining us. Uh, good luck with your master's and with uh, uh, your slating um, uh, for major command. Do you know yet where you'll be going? Uh, I think I'm heading out to a, a cruiser. In, uh, well, I'm slated to go out to a cruiser in uh, Japan. 
fantastic. Congratulations for that. Thank so, you very much. I'm excited. Be, if I could add one more thing, as yeah. a Naval Academy alumni of the class of 96, I'd like to say go Navy, beat Army as well. Absolutely. Amen. All right. And don't forget, uh, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. Have a great week. Thank you. Have a great day. Okay. We'll see you next week, everybody. Thank you.